So, Hailey, how are you? I'm good. I'm just recovering from COVID, but doing well other than that. I wish you all the best. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. I hear it's your first podcast. This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to this episode of the podcast series Conversations with the President. I'm Steve Bougeau, President of the Canadian Bar Association, and I'm speaking to you from Montreal, situated on land which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst Indigenous peoples, including the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations. And I very much acknowledge and thank the diverse Indigenous peoples whose presence marks this territory on which peoples of the world now gather. When attacks on judicial independence on the rise and access to justice is in crisis, it becomes increasingly difficult to advance substantive equality. When equality rights are not fully recognized, this in turn undermines the independence and accessibility of the courts, thereby creating a vicious cycle. What can we do to further the public's trust in our justice system? What can we do to help modernize, diversify, and defend the justice system? A closer look at trans and non-binary legal issues sheds light on wider access to justice barriers still very much prevalent in Canada. From straight income inequality to covert and overt systemic abuse of gender non-confirming, racialized and otherwise marginalized groups. First up, education. And this podcast is part of that process. Whatever your role in it may be, the legal profession is all about difficult and often painful journey from ignorance and cruelty to understanding and acceptance. My guest today, Lee Nivens, longtime LGBTQ2S plus community advocate and a very active CBA member in good standing with the BC branch for many years. So very good standing that you are currently the second CBA BC vice president. Congratulations for that important leadership role. And you are into the fifth year as its SOGIC co-chair. So my first question to you, Lee. What originally got you started on your career path in the law? Thanks, Steve. And I should mention that I'm joining you from Vancouver, which is the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples. And in my case, particular, it's the territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I did not want to be a lawyer. <laughs> so I don't have the typical path into law. I was raised by an artist. Law was not something that was on my radar. I wanted to be an astronaut for quite a long time in a very serious way a doctor and then anything but a lawyer because I, I just had a not the best view of what lawyering meant. But eventually I was doing work as a, a policy analyst for legal aid in BC. And I thought that, well, I may as well try, <laughs> might as well try law school, see how it goes. I seem to have a, the right skill set. And maybe even if I hate lawyering, maybe at least I can then do policy at a higher level. But for better or for worse, I actually liked being a lawyer. <laughs> And now, 10 years later, here I am. Congratulations, Lee. So uh, we all have our own stories about why we became a lawyer, and it's often not a uh, straight line. Let's use this word. <laughs> How do you, I'm, I'm a um, cisgender gay male. My pronouns are he, him. So how do you define uh, who you are? I am queer and non-binary and trans, and I use they, them pronouns and, and the title mix, as you used in my introduction. I'm also agender if I go within further into the umbrellas of uh, non-binary. 
but I've come out as those things at different stages in my life, as, as most people do, I think. It's the core of the subject we want to address today. So um, what are the obstacles you faced when you came out and what are the obstacles you're still facing today as a very prominent lawyer in your jurisdiction? Uh, in my case, I came out as trans and non-binary during my career, which was a different type of challenge than being out uh, during law school. And I talked to a lot of people who are in law school or just graduating from law school who are navigating being out uh, in that context. And when I was in law school, there were no out trans people that I was aware of. And I had no, no, no role models or, or in my life, <laughs> especially non-binary people. I knew some trans people. I didn't know any non-binary people. And so I barely had sort of the language to even express who I was. So it took a little while. I graduated, started lawyering, was, was doubling down on just establishing myself as a lawyer, as a lot of people do in those first few years that can be really intense. But then I started to grow my community of, of people, specifically non-binary people who, who, are in the who are in the legal profession. And um, it's sort of through that process and self-reflection that I realized I didn't need to carry that burden any longer, that there was language and that I could be out. And basically the way my brain works, once I decide something, it's instant. <laughs> so essentially the next day I'm, I'm out and, uh, and then start this, this path that I've been currently on these past few years of, of being as visible and open as possible to help change the profession and the legal system. So you will agree with me that there are a lot of challenges and obstacles in the legal profession for everyone that is part of a marginalized group. So what is the first step? Where, where should we be going as a community? I'm talking about the legal community to alleviate, to reduce these barriers and to where should we start in your opinion? Uh, I think education is still the, the first step. I think that there's still uh, large swaths of the legal community that don't have the basic trans 101 type of training. Um, and I, I conduct some of that myself and a lot of fantastic people who do it as well. And it feels slow <laughs> to be doing a lot of 101 training, but I think that's still an essential part of the work that we that we need to do because there are people who, who don't know it because they don't, often it's people who might not have trans people in their lives, so they, they need to learn it from elsewhere. And I think that's the first step. I, I think that the vast majority of people, um, any issues they have are, are based on a lack of understanding and knowledge rather than actual animus. Um, although there are people who have specific anti-trans agendas and, and hate. But then we need to go further than that into the 201 to more substantive education on the substantive legal issues that face trans clients uh, that lawyers have. So we need to do get the 101 done, but then we also need to move into the more substantive legal issues as well. We saw in the last uh, census in, in uh, 2021 that there is a uh, growing, uh, fast-growing number of uh, individuals identifying as trans or non-binary in Canada, in our population, and our country was the first country to measure that. So what do you attribute the fact that there are in the generation from 18 to 25 years old, it's close to 1%, which is a pretty substantive number of people. So what do you attribute that number? Is there really more trans and non-binary people in the younger generation? Or is it like we created the space for these people to express themselves? I think it's just a, a gradual increase in, in safety and awareness and the ability to, to come out and still have a life. 
I look at generations older than me, there are vanishingly few people in that generation who are non-binary and trans and who are out. We have lost a lot to the AIDS crisis as well of our of our elders in the community. So that generation is particularly underrepresented, I think, in statistics. But over time, we've we've sort of built back up and started to create the space and do the education needed to hopefully allow more and more people to come out and authentically be themselves. So I don't think it's necessarily a change in in human humans. <laughs> it's a change in how we're treating each other, rather than any kind of change in our physiology or biology that's changing um, our demographics. I agree with that with you, Lee. There is, I hope, a lot of people listening to this podcast and they're not part of our community. How can these people help uh, the trans and non-binary people if, if they don't know anyone and it's, it's a subject that might feel far from their reality? Where should they start and what can they do concretely to help? The first step is for people to do the education like we've, we've talked about. And I, I think that if people recognize that they have that gap in their knowledge and their understanding and then seek out education to fill it. I think that's, first, I like this person and I want to meet them. <laughs> But also, uh, I think there is a lot of education out there for people to take and to increase their understanding and also to meet members of the trans community in that profession. There are lots of opportunities and more people who are out. And I think that that personal touch can do a lot, as well as reading The, the writing from trans and non-binary writers and from uh, just sort of participating more in our culture and starting to understand it a little bit more. There are also very like, concrete, specific things that people can do, such as including their pronouns in introductions and in email signatures and in their introductions in court. And that creates space and safety for other people to also provide their pronouns and is a bit of a signal that they're aware of this issue and they're going to try not to rely on assumptions about other people and not rely on assumptions or the privilege of correct assumptions in, in reference to themselves. So that's an important move. But I think allies in general, the, the best things that they can do in, in addition to education is to really be led by and guided by the trans community itself and to create space for it and to create opportunities for leadership for trans people to actually make room and space for trans voices to, to come to the forefront. You made reference to the use of pronouns, so it's it's something that is um, well established in British Columbia. You've been one of the first jurisdictions, the legal system, to introduce it and use it. It's not the case in every province. I could say, like for Quebec, it's uh, I've never seen it in front of the court, and it's not part of the bylaw yet, <laughs> court regulation. Could you tell our auditors or people listening? Why is this important? And we'll talk about misgendering just after as well. Uh, yeah, it's sort of it's easier to explain it the other way around, actually, because to talk about the harms of misgendering, because it's important to reduce. It's important to introduce pronouns in order to reduce misgendering. Misgendering is when you use the the wrong language, the wrong gendered language to refer to someone. So, like I use they them. So if you use he him for me, then you'll be misgendering me. Or if you call me Ms. Nevins. That's also misgendering me because I use mix. And misgendering is harmful. I mean, there's studies that, that, that demonstrate the psychological harm of ongoing misgendering for trans people, but it's also signals that were, were not included, were not being accorded equal uh, dignity and respect and acknowledgement in the setting that we're in. And when I'm misgendered, for example, I don't know, it could be an intentional attack 
uh, misgendering is used as a, as a very deliberate attack to try to deny our existence uh, and delegitimize our, our opportunity to be in that space, even in the courtroom. Um, or it might be an, an intentional, but uh, it's it, <laughs> you don't know in the moment. So you just know immediately that you're kind of removed from that setting. You're not as included as anyone else, and you might even be a danger. And that happening repeatedly to somebody is a real significant impediment to participating in the profession or participating in a legal proceeding if you're in court and that's happening. So I think the harm is significant. <laughs> um, I know, uh, you know, people who avoid or used to avoid court, for example, because uh, that very public misgendering from authority figures on the record in front of clients and opposing counsel, that's kind of horrifying. And in most cases, you kind of just suck it up and take the hit to your dignity because you want to move on. You want to do your job of doing your submissions in court. But doing that day in and day out is just not tenable. It's, it's extremely harmful on, on the mental health of the people who are being misgendered. I think there's a lot of link between mental health issues and, and the imperative of equity, diversity, and inclusion. So we need to reduce the misgendering. And a big way to do that, or one of the <laughs> ways, one of the first and easiest things we can actually do to reduce that is to introduce pronouns and everybody introducing pronouns. So it's just a, sort of an upgrade of the basic standard of professional civility so that we're correctly addressing each other in court and in other matters, like in, in letters or meetings. I'm a big believer of, of stories and sharing stories. So would you be generous enough to, to share an example of a situation where if it happened to you, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure it happened, uh, you've been misgendered and how it made you feel. So people listening can understand a bit better uh, how important it is and how painful it is for the person that is the object of the misgendering. Usually I do <laughs> a slightly anonymized <laughs> example um, of this, but I, I can do the, the example. An anonymized example is, is I do a lot of work in fisheries, so I um, might be in court doing like amazing submissions on sockeye salmon migration runs. And I'm very focused on that. And uh, the judge might interrupt me uh, as they do and ask me a question. And in asking that question, she might she'd say she misgenders me. And I absolutely will definitely <laughs> notice that I've just been misgendered. And I have literally a split second to decide, do I correct that misgendering. It's just happened from a judge on the public record in court in front of my colleagues who know it's just happened in front of my client and opposing counsel and their clients and probably the school group that came in to hear my incredible sockeye salmon submissions. So they all just love it. And so I need to decide. I have to decide, do I, do I pause and actually correct the judge and risk maybe her being angry or confused and not knowing what on earth I'm talking about? And then we have to have a little Trans 101 in the middle of the submissions on South by Salmon, or do I just suck it up and carry on and try to refocus on what the question was that she asked me? Most of the time, that's what I'll do. And it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't feel good. It, it feels terrible. And afterwards, I'll, that'll linger with me that that's just happened and, and my colleagues might talk about it and we all know what's just happened. And I'm supposed to be able to be focusing on what I'm in court for. So it's also really unfair uh, and can become a career impediment when you're constantly being misgendered in court because you're constantly being distracted and having to make these calls about whether to protect your dignity in a situation or to let your dignity go and try to, to carry on with your submissions. Um, whichever decision you make, it's never a good one to have to do day in and day out in your, in your career. 
And the same, the same thing can happen to clients like they who are focused on whether or not they're trans clients, whether focused on whether or not their their basic human dignity is going to be recognized in court, and they're focused on that instead of the criminal matter or the family matter that they're actually in court for. Uh, whereas the cisgender people in court who are not misgendered don't have that extra consideration, and all their energy and time and focus can go towards the legal matter. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the judge in your example that just did that, and that person is listening <laughs> our podcast, what would be your advice when it's done and you notice it? If you don't notice it, like you can't do anything, but if you noticed it, what is the next step? Like, what should you do? My take on, on mistakes, and I think everybody makes mistakes, uh, especially on this, and I still make mistakes uh, sometimes with friends, and I've even made mistakes by misgendering myself, uh, especially in the early days. <laughs> it's just, you know, that binary. I, I actually I actually deadnamed myself because when you use someone's former name instead of their current name, I actually did my name myself in a training once and I horrified and I apologized to myself for it because you get you get so broke and it's really ingrained in our brains. So it does happen and it will happen and it will continue to happen because and it happens to all of us. So, but when it does happen, I think there are two uh, main steps to it, the to dealing with a, a mistake. The first is as soon as possible and as quickly as possible, just apologize, acknowledge you made a mistake, apologize, correct yourself and move on. And so in the case, um, say in court, if a judge misgenders me, say they say, Mr. Nevins, and the judge hears herself say that, she can say, oh, sorry, I mean, Mix Nevins. That's it. <laughs> then move on. <laughs> Just correct it and move on. Or if you don't catch it in the moment, um, you can send a, a quick email or a text or something afterwards, just acknowledging the mistake and saying you're going to try to do better. Uh, the second part, though, uh, which I think is equally if not more important is the doing try to do better part and that can involve taking on more education for yourself or working through your practice to figure out ways to reduce your the chances of you misgendering so in the case of a, a judge perhaps they can write down someone's pronouns and title next to their names if they don't have that on an appearance list or counsel can do that for their colleagues uh, or practice uh, scripts so they're used to using pronouns that maybe are less familiar i have um, friends, for example, who will read children's books to their kids, but they'll change all the pronouns, which is good for the kids, although I think the kids are all right. Uh, but it's great for the adults, too, just to get used to saying like they, them in all kinds of sentences when you're talking about a specific person. And that little shift, um, getting your mouth used to saying it can start to sort of change those patterns that we uh, sort of unconsciously rely on, and which end up in a lot of misgendering, even, even like me <laughs> for myself. Lee, another situation on which I would like your advice. As court officers and lawyers, when we find ourselves in situations where there is the refusal from someone, it could be a witness, another party, opposing counsel, to acknowledge and use the correct pronouns. So, And there are a great number of possibilities here, but let's take one example. Like, What do you think is our role in, in such a situation where someone is saying, my pronouns are they, them, and someone else in that discussion or court hearing is refusing to use the correct pronouns. Should we intervene? Is it something we should address? Do, should we be moving on? I would like your advice on this. I would say it, uh, it depends on why they're refusing it. Like if, if it's a, a mistake that's happening, then I think uh, it should be guided by the person who's being misgendered. 
as to whether or not they would like somebody else to correct those mistakes, if, or if instead you should just create an opportunity for them to make the correction if they if they wish. Uh, not everybody wants other people to correct for them. I I love it when people do, so I say go for it. But I know there are people who who don't want that. Uh, so the best for inadvertent <laughs> misgendering is to is to be guided by the person who is being misgendered to help them uh, to know how best to help them uh, to reduce the harm. Intentional misgendering by a lawyer that's professional misconduct. <laughs> um, and so I think that is a completely different scenario, and that is something that it, uh, ought to be dealt with by the law societies. I agree because uh, that, that, that's an attack on that person who's being misgendered, and it's a deliberate one if they know what the correct pronouns are and are constantly using the wrong ones. Let's talk now about the the law itself. So to what extent, it's a, it's a big question, uh, to what extent can we use the law to, to educate and, and to which extent the law is itself the, the problem and the uh, obstacles that, that the trans and non-binary community is facing? Oh, that, is, that is a big question. And there are reports about that <laughs> that people should, uh, uh, hopefully we'll take time to read uh, reports on, and, and information on trans access to justice in the various ways that the law and policies and the legal profession itself and institutions are impediments to access to justice for trans people. There are specific legal issues like that are the subject of change right now. For example, the banning on conversion therapy is an important milestone and change, and that uh, needs to be followed up on provincially. But other broader legal issues like min mandatory minimum sentences do disproportionately impact trans communities and are extremely harmful on uh, trans people who are incarcerated and or accused of crimes. And I missed part of the last part of your question. <laughs> there, was, there was a big question. I just took a little piece of it. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, where I wanted to take you is that the law part of the problem and the legal system part of the problem. And as you know, there was a recent report ordered and received by Justice Canada addressing that. And there's a few... Uh, pretty striking sentences in that report. And one is that the legal system is not that much the solution, but is a big part of the problem, the way we're addressing, uh, treating, working with the trans and, and non-binary uh, people in Canada. So that's that's what I wanted to discuss with you. So what's, where's the issue in your opinion and where are the solutions or the opportunity to improve? Yes, I mean, the, the research out of Ontario does show that there's there are significant problems in, in, in the interaction with trans people with the justice system broadly from a lack of, of feeling of safety, even if going to a court or a tribunal or a lack of safety going to a lawyer's office. And that's paired with an increased uh, instances of, of legal issues for trans people. Um, and these are the transforming justice uh, reports and trans pulse surveys that I'm talking about. And some of what we've already talked about can go some of the way towards improving that. For example, the legal profession uh, updating itself on its basic professional standards in terms of pronouns and using correct pronouns for people who come into their office. And the same thing can be said for all court staff, from everyone from the, the sheriffs to, to the registrars up to the judges, ensuring that they are equally acknowledging and respecting trans people, including the pronouns that they use and the titles that they use or no titles if they don't use them. And then we can go further from that as well in, in terms of ensuring that we don't have other unconscious bias uh, that's happening. And in terms of, uh, say, 
assessing somebody's credibility or assessing someone for a job. Either case, how being aware of and, count and actively counteracting the bias that can come into those assessments, for example, in terms of how somebody is presenting themselves, their gender expression, and what they might be wearing, and what's considered professional or what's considered a credible way of behaving, because there are a lot of other factors going into how someone is presenting, um, even for witnesses. Their, their background and their experience with the justice system uh, will affect how they're presenting in the justice system, how they might be providing their testimony, for example. By the time this podcast will be released, the data of the uh, National Survey on the Well-Being of Lawyers and Other Legal Professionals ordered by the Federation of Law Societies and the Canadian Bar Association will have been released. And in that report, we will notice the LGBTQ community within the legal profession, like other marginalized groups, are significantly more impacted by issues of mental health and also more impacted by the pandemic, which is when true that we don't know yet if we're out of. So again, your opinion, your vision or your personal experience, like, and, and it's even the larger population, it's, it's not limited to trans and non-binary community. I think we're focusing here about gay people, lesbians and, and bisexual people. They're much more impacted. That's what the data shows in that survey and it's significant data. So why do you think it's, uh, it's the case? I think that the existing inequities across the board were exacerbated uh, over the past few years. And, and Trans and queer people have a higher rate of poverty, for example, and people who are poor have suffered a lot <laughs> in the past couple of years, more so than people who are rich. Uh, and that disparity, uh, I think, has worsened during the pandemic. There's also an increase in hate crimes and anti-trans rhetoric and crimes against our communities generally, and that has been... <sighs> And it's so much bizarrely paired with conspiracy theorists, it seems sometimes. Um, and these, these anti, uh, an increase in anti-trans um, hate and rhetoric in our in our public sphere, and and that ine inevitably has an impact on our mental health. Hearing that day in and day out, even if not you're, you yourself are not being personally attacked, uh, it it is um, it's heartbreaking to hear. And I'm somebody. I'm generally I have a lot of privilege. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm white, I'm, I have a very secure employment, but a lot of privilege, which insulates me from a lot of it. Um, but even where I'm at, I, it, it, it has had a significant impact on me, the negative impact on me to hear what's going on, to be aware of what's going on and to see what's going on to my, with my friends and my community and, and even more broadly internationally, especially uh, in places like the States. And that has a personal impact uh, when you hear people denying your existence or attacking people who are like you or claiming that people like you don't exist or don't deserve rights or equal access uh, to justice or access to safe schools or access to washrooms or access to sports <laughs> or access to decent clothing it's very hard to find good clothes <laughs> so it's uh it's uh, unfortunately I, I am not surprised at all by that that data um i think I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in my own community, both inside the legal profession and outside of it. You made reference to anti-trans movement and policies and ideas that 
we've seen uh, a lot in another country not far from us, uh, but Canada is not immune to that. And we've seen some examples of that recently in Canada. We won't get into the details, but I want to have your view on why is so that it seems that it, I don't know if the word trigger is the right word, but it, 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 there's a space for that. And it seems that some people think that they're going to gain popularity by targeting uh, the trans and non-binary population. So do you have a sense of why they have this feeling and why they're targeting you? Because I feel like there's a secondary reason for that. Uh, I think they're, they're punching down. They're, it's easier to go after an already marginalized group than to um, use that as a lever to try to gain power themselves. So it's to create an other, a boogeyman, to, to, for them to unite against in a sort of a, a, an ongoing populist sort of political approach. And uh, trans people are marginalized. And so it's easier to go after us because we, we don't have uh, the same power or stature as other groups yet. <laughs> um, and so I think that is being used as a political tool and a, a social tool uh, to create to create fear uh, and to use that fear to, to gain power for certain elements of society who, who think that's beneficial <laughs> for their own interests. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a bit fueling on fear on the unknown, right? So, so we've seen a few trans and non-binary public figures uh, in Canada and, and, and around the world. And thankfully, there is more and more. But uh, why do you think there's not more uh, role models? Um, yes, first, I just want to say one thing about unknown is that we're not, we're not unknown. <laughs> We, um, we're right here, and I think that people who don't know are intentionally not knowing. They're, they, they don't want to know us, uh, and, and in many cases, the people who are, are um, shoveling this hate do know trans people. They might have trans people in their family that they've disowned and kicked out of the home. They might have trans kids, and so we're not actually unknown. I think they're using that uh, as a lever. Um, to, to hide us and to then turn us into a boogeyman. But we're, we're right here and we're, <laughs> there's so many of us who are out and open and, and are known in the community and are, are active in the community. <clears throat> I, know how, I know what your intent was <laughs> with it, but I just, I, um, we're, lost, so many people are making such great effort to be seen and known uh, that I think we just have to be careful with, with the language. Um, Public figure. That's why I. That's why I invited you, Lee, because you're honest and you don't. <laughs> you don't fear to. Uh, to let me know and let people know what you think of how we address people, what we say. That's how we grow when we don't fear saying what we think. So thank you for that. No problem. I'm here being known. <laughs> <laughs> uh, public figures. I'm not. I'm not a great person to ask on that because I don't follow. Um, a lot of of media, um, and I uh, so <clears throat> whenever we have um, things like name your favorite drag queen, I'm I'm always in trouble because I just don't. <laughs> but, um, but I would go for some local non-binary ones, just for the record. Uh, but I think um, 
there are some real tra- trailblazers in this area of law who aren't necessarily trans. For example, I could not get through this discussion without mentioning Barbara Finley Casey, uh, who is a legend, um, and she's she's an ally. She's a she's queer, uh, but a cisgender woman, and for over four decades has been working in this area. Has faced um, tremendous pressure and backlash for her support and activism and, and legal work on trans issues to try to move that bar. And I think, um, I personally think she's done a huge amount of the work that was necessary to create the space for my generation of lawyers to actually be out. And without her, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> where we, where would we actually be? Cause I don't, she, she like physically created that space with her own, her own body, her own, her own energy, her, and at great peril to her own mental health and physical health, uh, to be a trailblazer and to be the first person speaking up and then invited us to join her. And uh, that's, we can't thank her enough. And I, and I fear what state we would be in as a profession if she hadn't done that work uh, to allow the rest of us to come up. It was a bit more safety and a bit more covered and to be out. So she's a huge one. Um, and I know she's, she's gotten, she got the Louis Saint Laurent award this year. Uh, for the work that she's done, and she also had the, the Goya Award out of DC as well, um, and ever so well deserved. And she's definitely a mentor for me. Um, but I actually, also find if we're talking about role models and mentors, um, there's all my my contemporaries who are all incredible and fantastic and doing hard work everywhere, and that that community within the law and outside of it. But the people that I often look to is the real change makers and, and, and trailblazers are our kids. They're the people who have the, the bravery to come out to their parents or to try to be out in schools and to even speak to adults who might be spewing anti-trans hate and going to school board meetings even and, and speaking at them. Or It's, it's a, those everyday acts. It's going to the building superintendent saying, hey, there's no washroom that's safe for me to use here. Um, or, or correcting pronouns <laughs> uh, in whatever context you're in. It could be at a restaurant. It could be saying, oh, we're not, you know, uh, correcting when people say ladies or guys uh, to a group of people. Uh, those are all little acts that take a lot of bravery. And they're what I think ultimately starts to create the necessary changes, those personalized acts. Um, and so they're the people I look up to. Like, I don't even... Like I was saying, when I was my coming out, I, I didn't, I, I didn't have the language to even say who I was uh, when I was in high school, for example. I knew queer, but not, not non-binary. Um, and it's those other people who who really developed that language and created that space so that people like me could even say who I am and start using those words. You use the word queerly, so and it's it's a personal opinion, but I think we see a multiplicity of identities so we already have the two else lgbtq plus acronym and we can add more letters and there's even identities that are not included in in, in these letters in that acronym so for our, for the allies that are listening some people tell me sometimes that they get lost in all the identities it seems that we came to a point where there's even one identity for each individual. So what 
what would be your advice or comment for the people listening and they're they're not part of the community and they they feel a bit lost in that multiplicity of identities my biggest advice is to um, use the language that people use for themselves and reflect that back at them and to not make assumptions about what language to use. Uh, for, so when we're talking about pronouns, that one's pretty straightforward. Use the pronouns that people identify for themselves and don't assume which ones they're going to use. Um, for words like queer or trans or non-binary, um, if someone has used one a word in reference to themselves, then you use that word. But do be careful um, about what you use because some some words are offensive. For example, queer is more and more commonly used, and I use it to refer to myself. Organizations, some organizations use it in their titles, but it is also still considered a slur and is a, a painful, derogatory word um, that has been used and harmed uh, many in our community, especially cisgender gay men. Uh, and so, uh, just be careful. And I think what you can do. Um, really what you can rely on rather than specific words or specific meanings, because those are hard to nail down and people use them differently, is to really focus on acknowledgement and respect. And that's acknowledging and seeing everybody around you and respecting them by using the correct language. And if you make a mistake, then do what we talked about earlier, just correct yourself respectfully and, and learn and move on. And that's what I do as well because um, the evolving language affects me too and I still I do get it wrong and there's more you know words that people use I think I've used queer before in uh, for example in in a harmful way and I didn't know I was causing harm uh, by using it as a big umbrella term but I I learned from that and corrected it and and moved on from that and and I think we it's something we all do in this area of sexual orientation and attraction and gender identity and expression uh, but also in other areas of, of um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, where we're all learning together. <laughs> and if we approach it with respect uh, and acknowledgement, then we can hopefully uh, get through any changes that continue in our languages. Yeah, I agree. There's so much we don't know. We don't know <laughs> until we learn that we don't know something. So uh, you're sounding like Donald Rumsfeld now. <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> exactly. I won't repeat the full speech. Uh, but but Lee, how how would you define queer? I know there's many definitions, and I I give a training in which there is a definition. But what's your definition? I my definition has actually changed over the years. Um, I was um, administrator of Queer McGill. I'll date myself now. Uh, McGill University. When I started, it was LGBTM. Yes, <laughs> so lesbian, gay, trans, McGill. Uh, when I was administrator, we changed the title to Queer McGill, um, and with the idea being that queer would be an umbrella term for the L, the G, the B, and the T. Um, and then, so it would include basically attraction, sexual orientation, and gender identity within that one big broad queer term. Uh, then over time, the Q got added to the acronym because some people within that umbrella didn't identify with the term. And so it became its own word within it. Um, and now I think it's mostly used as a, um, a term for, for attraction or sexual orientation. Uh, and that's generally how I now use it, just as a, my identity in that regard. I don't use, um, I've used other words before, but now I find queer is just the best term. It's a nice big overall term for me as well. But some people still use it in the big umbrella sense, and some people use it in a more 
narrow sense of um, a sexual orientation. So the, you, you said trans 201. So what did you mean by that? What I mean by that is that there are, are substantive legal issues that are important for lawyers to be aware of for their trans clients um, in most practices, um, areas of practice uh, in law. And so once you figure out and learn about pronouns and how to treat everyone with equal dignity and respect who comes in your door, you also need to know the substantive legal, legal matters so that you can properly serve trans clients. Um, so that means uh, being familiar with issues that may arise, for example, in family law or fertility law that are specific to, to trans clients. Um, there's all kinds of areas of law, immigration law, there could be issues. Um, and there are great resources out there. My area of law, as I mentioned before, fish, not a lot of trans issues that are in it. Uh, so I mostly work, operate at a different level, but I think um, there are fantastic resources out um, on um, trans issues in the law and, and, and articles by academics like Sam Singer and Lawrence Ashley um, and others who, who have that knowledge. And so I think seeking that out and being aware of that so that you can serve your trans clients well, uh, in addition to treating them well, uh, is critical. And that's the next, that's the next step after the one-on-one. I agree. There is a, there's some data. And in fact, it's the, the two surveys you made reference to transpol survey and the other that the community is not trusting the system and it's mainly due to the fact that the uh, legal actors judges lawyers clerks are not reinforcing the trust relationship that should be in place by not knowing enough about uh, their clients or the individuals appearing in front of them and the legal issues they're facing and that are unique to their situation so i i agree with you we haven't talked about the law schools and the law societies in Canada. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of good things being done, but what is not being done and should be done in your in your opinion? Most of my knowledge is is based out of BC, of course, and this is where I, I work. But um, starting with the law schools, I think uh, there's quite a lot they can still do in terms of getting even the, the trans 101 that we've been talking about, uh, getting that. Uh, out and ensuring that professors and staff uh, and other students are using correct language and pronouns in reference to the students so that trans students feel welcome and safe and included in those environments. And that's an education that, that all, all people, including professors, uh, who often might not see that they need that, but including professors, uh, need that. And they need that substantive knowledge, the 201 that we're talking about as well, uh, when they're teaching their courses. So it's not just something reserved um, on the side for a little ethics class, but it's something that should be integrated throughout the curriculum, both in terms of using uh, trans people's examples and in course material, uh, correctly addressing students and any substantive legal issues that students need to be learning. Then there are infrastructure issues like ensuring the bathrooms that are safe and accessible for trans and non-binary students to access in, in our facilities, in our libraries, in our washrooms. Um, and, um, and keeping an open dialogue, I think. Uh, often uh, organizations might sort of <laughs> withdraw and shut down, uh, but they need to keep that dialogue open and they need to acknowledge that they can learn from their trans students as well, uh, that they have that and be open to accepting that feedback. 
Um, for law societies, I I think our law society here in BC, they I think they've started to do some really great work, and they have heard that feedback, and they're starting to um, upgrade materials for our PLTC, which is our our bar school in BC, um, and practice resources, and they've done a lot of work to for that, and I think they have that work ongoing uh, to also help educate the rest of the profession because the students often are the most educated on these issues, but they need to get that education out to all lawyers uh, and encourage it among all lawyers. Uh, but they're also doing other things like, I, I think this might only be in BC right now, but it's something hopefully other provinces pick up, uh, like having uh, titles and pronouns, something that we can add to our lawyer listings, our lawyer lookup on the Law Society website so that people can look us up and then gender us correctly when they write us a letter or give us a call. Um, and making it easier to change our names on the lawyer lookup so that we can reduce dead naming uh, of lawyers. Because uh, those, those dead names or zombie names as they often are, because they will not die, they, they creep up everywhere. Uh, and people ought to be, lawyers ought to be able to change that uh, with ease so that they're not dead named professionally. Um, so I think a lot of different law societies are different places, but also making sure that it's clear that intentional misgendering is professional misconduct and actually dealing with it in a disciplinary way. If something arises that's pretty, that's egregious, they need to be brave and, and stand up and like draw that line, um, I think, for the trans communities of, of basic respect. Great advice, Lee. I hope our friends from the Federation of Law Societies are listening. <laughs> you said a few times that I heard that it's important to include the trans community and the non-binary community in the discussion, in the room when there's a decision being made. Why is that? The decisions are about us. Um, so nothing nothing for us without us. It almost sounds trite at this point, but it, it, it is true. It's fundamentally true. We, If we're going to put resources and energy towards improving something for a group that group needs to take the lead and so if we want to improve access to justice for trans people for example then we need to talk to trans communities diverse trans communities across the country not just people who look like me but everybody uh, uh, across the country to see what are their priorities what where are they hurting most and how can we help in that area and unless you're a member of that community, you, you don't necessarily see what it is. Just like there are tons of cisgender people who don't have trans people in their lives who think there is no transphobia in Canada anymore because they just they can't see it from the, the perspective of their lives. So you need to, to go to the people who are experiencing it um, day in and day out and be guided by them to figure out how to help them and then to en enable them and empower them to do the work themselves. Thank you so much, Lee, for the podcast today, for being here. I learned a lot, and I thank you for your generosity, your courage, uh, your candor, and you are a role model <laughs> for me because you have so much... Hmm, I can't find the, the word in English. Play for me in French. <laughs> Even though I'm a PC. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Because you're a wise person, Lee. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us and your advice. Uh, I, I think that the people listening learned a lot, and it's a, and education, as you said, it is a 
is a big part of the solution of the problems that we're facing. Thanks very much for having me. And I, I look forward to this year of working together with CBA to, to see what we can get done. We will, definitely. Thank you. This is Conversations with the President, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. If you would like to comment on anything you've heard in this podcast, please contact us directly via cba.org.